You're listening to Paz de Chipotle, the show that will take you to discover the edible treasures of Mexico. Episode 26. Welcome to this episode of Paz de Chipotle, the audible companion of Sabor, This is Mexican Food, a digital magazine dedicated to exploring the markets, streets, recipes, and traditions that make Mexico an edible paradise. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. To find more information about the show, please go to pasdechipotle.com. Find the show on Twitter as Chipotle Podcast. You can subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, and YouTube. For this week's episode, I have put together extracts from all the interviews I've had the pleasure to feature on the show, highlighting just some of the great conversations full of wit, wisdom, life experience, and deep knowledge from cooks, authors, bloggers, and entrepreneurs from all over the world that share a common passion for Mexican food. The accompanying blog post of this episode contains all the links mentioned on the show, so go check it while you enjoy it. On the YouTube version of episode 26, there will be extra material. Find the channel as Paz de Chipotle Podcast. You can contact me via Twitter, Instagram, and email. Find all the links on this episode's description or head to pazdechipotle.com, where you can also subscribe to my newsletter. While putting together this show, I reflected on so many things from the conversations with the guests, things I've talked in previous episodes, feedback you've given me, and all the things that have happened in my life and in my projects uh, during this time. So it was very interesting and I really enjoyed putting it together. I hope you enjoy it too. It's been over a year since Paz de Chipotle podcast first premiered, coinciding with the launch of Sabor, this is Mexican food magazine. These are two projects that I very ambitiously started, knowing, or at least I thought I knew, it would require an enormous amount of work and effort. Since then, I have learned so much about digital publishing, podcasting, and networking with people from all over the world listeners, guests, fellow podcasters, and authors. And I really do a conscious effort to put back in all the things I think will be of great value for the show, my editorial work, and of course, for you, the community of listeners. One of the reasons I created this project was to create a forum where to discuss in depth the meaning and value of Mexico's gastronomy what it conveys as a cultural product and UNESCO-listed heritage, and how Mexicans and non-Mexicans interpret and appropriate this heritage, and how we continue evolving and transforming our perceptions and relationships with this world-acclaimed cuisine. I have to confess that sometimes, in the beginning, I felt like it was an intimidating task to challenge deeply rooted views about heritage. 
because the heavy way of tradition has a way of compromising how we maintain its relevance today, right here and right now. But if we don't disrupt this monolithic view, well, then we don't move forwards towards an open conversation where everybody has a chance to participate. So I follow a very simple but effective rule when it comes to researching and inviting guests to be on the show. My focus is in the value and uniqueness they bring with their work and their personal and professional experience, and how these can offer new perspectives and inspiration. Some of the reflections I've made throughout the show with my guests and on other episodes is that unlike what is considered a haute cuisine that requires for chefs to take upon years of formal training and practice to master their craft and skills, Mexican traditional cooking, on the other hand, is transmitted within the domestic realm of family dynamics and also, of course, by learning on the go when men and women join or start their own food businesses. Now, for anyone who tries to learn directly from traditional Mexican cooks for the very first time, that person might soon realize that in spite of lacking of an institutional frame, the process involved requires so much implicit knowledge, intuition and a constant use of all the senses to understand the needs of each ingredient and each dish. Now, you will notice that even the allegedly starting common ground is really a minefield full of tacit knowledge with expressions like pinches, handfuls, listening to the sound of food as it cooks, using your body to establish temperature references, and even noticing how your mood affects the food. All of this knowledge is what many Mexicans have learned from their infancy, which I guess also helps explain why food is such a powerful and evocative way to incorporate traditions. Meli Martinez, author of the blog Mexico in My Kitchen, shared a very telling anecdote that illustrates this. When I was a little girl, I used to spend the summers at my grandma's ranch in Panuco, Veracruz. I remember when I wake up, sometimes my grandma would send us out to collect kindle for the fire. And once the fire was lit, the whole kitchen came to life. It was a very organized process and everyone had their little workstation. I would grind the corn in the metal grinder and my aunt would grind it in the metate. And my grandma made the tortillas. We also collected the fresh eggs from the hens. And everything we cook smelled delicious and invited and it was no surprise because all the ingredients we used to cook were fresh. Food as a common language across cultures presents itself as a very unique expression that makes us feel invited to appropriate it. And the gastronomic and symbolic cross-pollination really opens up new opportunities to express our creativity and appreciation for certain foods. A cuisine that is listed as heritage of mankind will actually do very little service to humanity if we don't champion it all over the world, even if it comes with its particular challenges, as American-born chef Sean Harrell has discovered since opening Barrio Comida, a taqueria in Newcastle, England. As far as like making tacos, I think the, the way we base the ideas behind any tacos 
I know that I can never kind of create something that's exactly as it is in Mexico because we don't have the same products and stuff. So we take the um, the basis of everything is, is Mexican, you know. You know, we'll do a chicken mole taco, but we'll, you know, I think everything probably has our little riff on it, I guess, too. So I guess the answer is just like through reading a lot through books. It's uh, the, the, how I've learned the kind of basics of it all. And then as far as tortillas go, I just watched hundreds of videos of old Mexican ladies on YouTube making tortillas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's I spent about three months just just on tortillas just trying to get that really big balloon puff on them you know so you have the oh. texture it's tricky like and if you don't get that puff on them it's well the texture's wrong it's all, it's all wrong <laughs> i think it's maybe even a little bit more difficult here because you you you, you don't get the same products over here mm. whereas you can get masa flour in mexico that's like like fresh dried blended flour like you, you can't get it here because it would yeah. die in transit so you know cooking by evoking an experience to try and recreate the flavors you remember can be quite challenging, as Sean shared. So the passion and humility with which he puts aside his professional training uh, to go teach himself by watching tortilleras doing their craft online is really a great lesson. Some of my guests have come across Mexican food almost by accident, and it was an experience that transformed their lives. And that was precisely the case of American Greek Spanish language teacher Nicole Macrinos, author of the blog Flan and Apple Pie. The first time I traveled to Mexico was 10 years ago, and I went to your hometown of Puebla, um, and I had no idea what to expect. I guess like my only encounter with what was considered Mexican food um, around here in Pennsylvania was hard shell tacos with cheese and lettuce on top. And not to say that there's anything wrong with that, because that's just a take on what um, you know people were trying to recreate um, what they thought was Mexican food here. But when I arrived in Mexico, um, my senses were just flooded with all of these new and amazing foods like fruits that I had never tried before. The soursop or guanabana is one of my favorite fruits. I would say what really solidified my experience with the food culture there was the family that I stayed with. So I stayed with this most amazing family in Puebla and my host mother, her name was Tere, she loved to cook and I think we just bonded over that and she made us the most amazing meals every single night. I remember they welcomed me me with tacos árabes. I think they knew that I loved the food and that Tere would make a lot of different things for me to try. And in fact, when I was getting ready to come back to the United States, she said to me, we want to get you a going away gift. What would you like? And I said, you know what I would like? I would like a tortilla press. So I remember we walked down to the local store and she bought me a tortilla press and it's the one that I use to this day. And it always makes me think of her and, and that first experience that I had with Mexican food. Now, Nicole was quite right to be perceptive to make that immediate connection between food and the social aspect of it in Mexico. Because the act of cooking is almost a permanently ongoing activity in Mexico. Of course, I mean, that is not to say that Mexicans only think about food all the time, but we engage with it in an almost... Um, let's say, ritualistic way as the cultural glue that creates family and community bonds, as well as creating an identity around it. 
Now, to illustrate then what it's like for a Mexican to grow up in this environment and then travel to a different continent and relocate in another social context with different traditions, well, all of these experiences become hugely important and they are a part of who we are and will stay with us forever. Just like Mexican Londoner and cookery teacher Carla Sasueta, author of Mexican Food Memories, shared here in the show. My dad grew up by the beach in Ensenada. So my dad is from Ensenada. And, you know, growing up, they would just basically go and look for their food most of the time. And so you, I remember when I was growing up, uh, I remember vividly, we would go to the countryside and pick up uh, watercress. Yeah, so my dad was kind of like a foodie. You know, we would go to the countryside and we would come back with vegetables, all the would grow organic, and but at that time you never heard the word organic. No, no. But it was you know because in a city mm-hmm. where there's a port, we would go to the beach and we would just pick. My dad and my uncles would go into the beach and they, they would pick up lots of mussels. You're not going to believe, but we would come back home with buckets. Full of mussels, and we would eat mussels for like about a week. Now, what do you think? Uh, You reckon that it's possible then to learn later in life what you didn't learn while growing up? Well, of course not, because we can't recreate that pristine surprise and appreciation for new things when we are children. Uh, But, you know, there is so much more we can incorporate and enjoy as very self-aware adults that can indeed shake up all of our preconceptions and establish beliefs about food and, well, in this case, specifically about Mexican food. Remember Diana Kennedy? I mean, she didn't come to Mexico seeking to become the nation's first gastroethnologist, but it happened. Many of you have sent me comments and emails saying how much you wish you moved to Mexico and eat all this wonderful food every day. But have you actually imagined what that experience will be like? Well, Douglas Cullen didn't have to imagine that. In fact, he didn't expect that at all. The author of the Mexican Food Journal shared this experience of how he became a Mexican cookery teacher. My, I got here, I knew nothing. You know, you would go to the market, you would see these amazing fruits and vegetables and chilies, and I had no idea what to do with them. You know, they looked amazing, but okay, now what? So I went through the process of, of knowing really nothing about Mexican cooking to over time, you know, little by little, um, learn how to cook some dishes and, you know, got more experience with it. So when we do the the recipes for like for the website is to really to go kind of step by step so people can recreate the flavors from Mexico. There are certain steps and things here in Mexico that are really, really obvious to people because they've grown up cooking that way. You know, if you didn't learn it from birth, it's all new to you. So um, in, in that sense, I know where I think where many people have trouble or they're not sure. It's like, well, what do I do here? You know, you know, say, say you go to the market and you buy a poblano chili and you want to make chili, chiles rellenos. And so you think, okay, well, um, you know, you can see a picture and everything, but just the fact that you have to char the chili and you clean the chili and, and you may not, I'd never, I had never cooked with chilies before. So I would, I would never think of charring a chili and cleaning it to prepare it for the dish. 
You've never seen the process. You may you may have had many chiles rellenos in your life, but the whole process of putting one together yeah. is a different thing. And and it's difficult online to explain sometimes the flavors that you're really you're going for that you're trying to create when you're cooking or what it should be like. But if you kind of you know follow the steps, you'll get the the flavors from from Mexico. One of the aspects that I think explain why Mexican gastronomy is so culturally significant is the fact that it has preserved its mixed heritage nature at the core of its expression, which includes practices and ingredients that might not be very familiar to the rest of the Western world and the Eastern world, for that matter, like edible insects or entomophagy. For decades, this practice of eating insects faced a lot of class and even cultural prejudice here in Mexico. Yeah, surprising, no? So this situation has slowly shifted to a more enlightened view and has been embraced by renowned Mexican chefs who have proudly added this tradition to their menus. And I think this really has contributed to give more context and appreciate these practices in a different view. Robert Nathan Allen, founder of the American charity Little Herds, never thought he would grow to become a champion of edible insects. And the actual circumstances of the food industry and global economy presented a unique opportunity for him to take this chance, as he explained here on the show. It, it really kind of uh, came together. I saw that there was a need for uh, public awareness and public education, resources for Uh, for parents or for educators or even for, for policymakers on how we can start looking at this critically, not, not looking at insects as a pest to be feared, but rather as a resource that's been untapped. Some of the statistics about hunger and food insecurity, and, and especially here in America, I think we, we often turn a blind eye to our own domestic issues, and, and we like to think of that as a problem that other people are dealing with. But even here in Texas, one in five households is considered food insecure because they don't get the nutrients they need through the food that they have access to, whether it's overly processed or if they live in a food desert and don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. And one in four children in Texas grows up in a food insecure household. You know, we're really selling that next generation short. And, and what we've really found with Little Herds is that children are very receptive to this idea. They don't have that psychological taboo against eating insects that most adults have acquired over time. Of course. It's healthy, it's good for the environment, uh, they're more humane than other animal options. Then the parents are more interested and they're more amenable to the idea of trying something with insects in it. And so I think that really helps, uh, you know, open up the door for starting those conversations about how we can really, uh, you know, bring our, our agricultural food system in line with the values that, that we have as a, as a greater population. Food is not only culturally significant and a source of sensory pleasure, which of course is relevant in its own right, but it is also an imperative. I mean, we can't survive without food, but also is key to the survival of our economic systems, which is why raising awareness about the environmental and social responsibility we have and the impact that every decision we take has, well, that should make us better consumers and realize the power we have to create a positive change with it. And that's exactly something that Viridiana Velarde discovered. She is the co-founder of Merci Mercado, a Mexican brand that produces gourmet edible insects. And this is what she shared. 
Well, for me, uh, bringing our products into the U.S. market and and uh, working with the small producers, chefs, uh, organizations like uh, Little Hearts and uh, Food Lovers, and yeah, yeah, and uh, I always have enjoyed international gastronomy and promoting Mexican food and culture, and I'm Mexican, and be able being able to do that with uh, people who who share the same passion as. Uh, as they, they, they their co-founders and um, the rest of the people in the in the food industry and in a project that started incorporating the products that have been part of the culinary traditions in Oaxaca, Mexico for centuries like grasshoppers and the, again the agave worms and the fact our project has a positive impact on our, on our pro planet and also in the local community. So that is the most exciting part of the, of the project for me. The fact that Mexican food is an active, living, breathing practice, I think that sort of causes Mexicans to don't feel an urge to document it because it really has such an embedded sense of continuity and tradition that brings certainty in relying on the fact that it will always exist. That's why many people see it as unnecessary to document it. Why if it's not going anywhere? But, you know, we migrate, people die, circumstances change. And when this continuity is broken or at some risk, then the survival cultural instinct kicks in and that's when we try to preserve this knowledge that is also part of our own personal history like American blogger Sonia Garcia author of La Piña en la Cocina mentioned in this intervention I think it really started for me when I was asked to do cooking classes because you know before I would cook and there would be no recipes I just knew what I liked And I was trying to learn my mom's recipes and, you know, they were very basic, simple, but, um, you know, they were the traditional ones. But when I was asked to do the cooking classes, I was like, what? I need to have a recipe? <laughs> I was like, a recipe, a written recipe? I was like, oh, I can't do this because, you know, to me, I was throwing in a pinch of this, a pinch of that. Well, when I tried to translate it on a piece of paper... It was like way too much of this spice or that spice. And I realized that you didn't really need, you know, two teaspoons of salt. You needed, you know, a quarter teaspoon or whatever. And and so it was really hard in the beginning. The, the recipes were very long in the beginning because I had to explain every detail. And um, but then eventually I got the hang of it and um, doing the cooking classes Um, led me to, you know, wanting to blog about it. I never owned a computer until 2011 as my family insisted, you need to get on online. Our, our family from Mexico's on there. They share pictures. And I was like, I don't want a computer. I don't care about being on the computer. And because I was working retail and, you know, I didn't have time to be on the computer, but But eventually, you know, that connection, I had to make that connection because especially since, you know, my parents weren't around anymore and I, I wanted to make that connection with my family in Mexico again. And, and so that led me to, you know, finding the food sites online. And I was just like, hey, and of course, everybody was like, please share your family recipes. I'm like, oh, this is where I need to be. <laughs> 
Now, what Sonia said is quite a new phenomena and has actually triggered many unforeseen effects, like the way second and third generation Mexican-Americans, especially young men, relate to food now, as cooking in Mexico has for centuries been perceived as an exclusively female activity. Sonia again shares a bit more about what she has observed regarding this change in how men relate to food. I'm amazed at how many um, men I see cooking. <laughs> um, when you talk about Chicano, mm. they are some amazing cooks out there and they're very proud of what they're putting out. And I, I'm fascinated by it because I think, you know, they have this image of, you know, whatever, Chicano and... Uh, but they are putting the food out there and and they're very proud of it. And I think that people see the food differently, you know, because they see these guys that you think, oh, you know, they don't look like they know how to cook, but then you see their plate. You know, I think that's great. And then they shared, they shared with me. So that was even better. So it's like, thank you. You know, I hear you have this image that it's just women cooking, but oh, oh no, no, no. It's like, it's amazing. I think it's great. And, and the image that they want to share that, you know, of the Mexican cooking, you know, it's, you know, there's just so much coming out right now. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to keep up with everything that's coming out of Mexico right now. <laughs> Time for a little break. We will return with the show after this message. Sabor, This is Mexican Food is a digital editorial project that celebrates the wonderful world of Mexican gastronomy, the flavors, ingredients, and traditions that have shaped this world-acclaimed cuisine. And now you can purchase and download a bundle containing all four available issues, the origins, cocoa, street food, and Mexican fiestas. Enjoy 23 thought-provoking articles and stunning photography that opens a window to understand and appreciate Mexico's rich culinary traditions. And unveil the secrets to prepare 43 delicious recipes that bring families together and will help you enjoy the making of your own traditions. Go to pazdechipotle.com forward slash magazine and get your bundle of sabor. Enjoy it in all your digital devices. Go to pazdechipotle.com forward slash magazine and get ready to cook, learn and enjoy Mexican food like you never imagined. Over time, it's not only gender stereotypes and their relationship with food that have changed. Just like edible insects, other foods and drinks associated with indigenous traditions had to be challenged. When talking to historian Dr. Deborah Turner about the perceptions of pulque in 19th century Mexico, it was fascinating to see how the Spanish-European view about this fermented drink caused such mistrust and triggered that much prejudice that it wasn't really until the 21st century that we have come to understand and see the cultural value of this drink and the traditions that surround it. Um, a lot of attention in Mexico was focused on pulque as a particular um, problem in producing alcoholism. Quite a large number of, of medical and, and political commentators on alcoholism 
thought that, that pulque was as dangerous as absinthe, for instance. You know, when you consider that pulque has the same more or less alcoholic strength as, as beer, those views are quite obviously connected more to fears about the type of people who were drinking pulque rather than pulque itself as, as a drink. Beyond that, I would say actually more down to prejudice about indigenous mixed race and lower class people within Mexico who were seen to suffer from drinking problems more than than other um, social classes. It has, um, in comparison to um, most alcoholic drinks, and including things like beer and cider, it's got really high vitamin content and proteins as well. Um, and in fact, there, there were still very prominent defenders of pulque, even at this moment in history. Um, so there is a study in, I think, the 1890s by a doctor who worked at a Mexican prison who actually used pulque to successfully treat a scurvy outbreak um, amongst the inmates. Um, so, so people were aware of these things, but um, to my mind, that makes it all the more strange um, and in need of explanation as to why um, so many people at this time thought erroneously, I would add, that, that pulque was more dangerous than um, distilled spirits. Um, and I think the explanation for that lies in um, essentially a, a class-based and race-based prejudice against, against pulque. My own training in social sciences, culture and development studies always drives my focus and analysis through a humanities perspective, trying to find the impact and the relevance and how we can understand and reframe historical perspectives with contemporary views about food. So I asked Dr. Turner, who also shares the same interest, what does she make of food as a field of study? I think the, the main reason I'm so fascinated with the history of food and drink and, and the cultural um, lives that they have is that, you know, eating and drinking and telling stories about food have such a great capacity to allow us to think about diversity and commonality across cultures. So the food stories that are told around um, eating and drinking experiences, where particular products come from, their histories and how they've been embedded in particular cultures over time. These are really important for being able to translate the, the broader histories and cultures of different parts of the world to one another. So there's such very human things and experiences. So even if a particular food or a particular drink is completely unknown to you, you know nothing about it, or maybe you do and you find it disgusting. I think there's still that potential to be able to establish a connection and an, and an understanding through other humans, other people. I mean, when I first time I went to Mexico, it was about 10 years ago, I only knew about Mexican food through reading about it. So actually being able to see and of course eat the amazing variety um, and richness of food in Mexico was just such a mind-boggling experience for me and really brought the historical interest that I had to life. And so I really hope that other people through reading kind of historical and cultural studies accounts of different foods and drinks from around the world that people can have that same experience. And of course, then the other thing that's kind of connected to that is that, you know, the movement of people 
and their food is is so thoroughly entwined both historically but also in our present day um you know with migration around the world and really tells us a huge amount about the process of cultural change how it happens and and why it's meaningful so i would really encourage people to take every opportunity to read about the the history of food or the history of drink in a different part of the world that they know nothing about it's an excellent way to build bridges and build relationships with people from across the world. I think our relationship with food in general is going through a very complex process in the Western world, at least, because never in history there have been so many television shows about it, books, travel and food programs, blogs, specialized apps for finding restaurants and food delivery services, and even ingredient sourcing by and even ingredient sourcing by subscription. We have understood the power of food as a less intimidating way to approach other cultures as well. And I think we feel safe and invited to explore new cuisines, as Yolanda Ocon, Mexican Supper Club host and head of marketing at the School of Walk in Covent Garden in London, explained. Well, I think we definitely live in a more connected world nowadays. People are looking for new adventures, new places to discover locally and around the world. Then you have the influence of social media, uh, where you see photos and videos of different destinations, delicious food all over the world. So a lot of people that come to the school and my events are people that either been to the country and want to have more of that delicious food that they have during their travels, or people that are just curious about discovering new flavors. But also you get the customers that are following the latest food trends on social media. And if you happen to offer what that, that, that's the trend, so then you're in luck because you're giving people what they want. You know, like that's what it's all about. A bit of everything, like especially at the school, uh, our demographic is from like 25 um, all the way up to like 54. Those are the people that come to the school. And then you get to hear the stories when they come to the classes. And a lot of people, it's like possibly they've lived in Hong Kong and they came back, so they want to recreate the dishes that they were having while they were living there as an expat. Or I think because it's so easy to fly to Asia, then you get a lot of people that they've been to Thailand, they had a class there, so they, they really enjoy the experience. So now they come back here to London or the UK and they want to have that experience again. And that's what we are offering at school. Um, as for the supper clubs, it's quite similar. Especially because most of the time we offer food from Mexico. So it's people that are intrigued about, like, you know, the culture, the Mexican culture, the Mexican flavors. There's this new wave as well here in London. Those is like a lot of new restaurants opening. They know more about the culture and the food. So they want to explore more about it. The diversity and large offer of cookbooks these days can be as exciting as intimidating and sometimes a bit misleading because how can we know which book is the right for us and if you are in search of traditional or authentic Mexican cookbooks who should you trust to actually deliver exactly that? Well Nicole Macrinos shared some of her personal journey and how far our interests can take us if we fully embrace it. 
So I guess like at first when I started coming to love Mexican food, I did realize that there were sort of two different types of Mexican cookbooks out there. And of course, I only had access at the time to what was here um, in the United States. And so I would sometimes take out a book on Mexican cooking only to return it the next day because I just was disappointed. And I and I said, you know, that's not the food I remember eating in Mexico. And then I would find books by like Diana Kennedy, let's say. And I said, wow, like this is what, you know, I need to read. And she really knows what she's talking about. But I guess what I came to understand is that the one book was directed at an audience that maybe only had access to certain ingredients. So it was already like trying to come up with a fusion sort of recipe so that people could try to recreate something that was, you know, supposedly Mexican, but it was never quite going to be that way versus the other was more of like preserving and documenting actual Mexican cooking. You know, I would go to such lengths as like, I can't find this, so I'm going to grow it in my garden. That's how I've grown um, tomatillos in my garden. We grew corn this year and beans, different squashes. I, I tried to make my husband's from Mexico and his mom makes the most amazing um, tamales the calabaza, which are these pumpkin and shrimp tamales. And I said, you know, I, I want to make them, but I didn't have the right sort of pumpkin here. And so I grew it myself. And so I think there's so much to learn by going to Mexico and actually learning from the home cooks themselves. But I think at the end of the day, what you need to remember is how much can that translate to your own home country? Because sometimes we just don't have access to certain ingredients. So I learned this in some of my classes about finding that balance, finding that happy medium of what is authentic, you know, what is too much, I guess. One of the challenges that many of my guests have experienced in their professional lives um, as cooks, bloggers, entrepreneurs and authors is how to culturally translate outside Mexico the social and cultural construct around food to people who had never experienced something remotely similar. Carla Sasueta shared how she addresses these in her cooking classes. Mexican food is not only about the flavors and ingredients and if it's traditional or not traditional. It's about that, about mm -hmm. the fact mm -hmm. that we do eat our Mexican food all together and we socialize and we share and we enjoy the food, but together. Yeah. yeah. So when I have my clients to mm -hmm. come for a Mexican cooking class, You know, then then nowadays they become after they become a supper club because I want to make people experience what what we have at home yeah. on a Saturday morning yeah. with my children and my husband. So that's what I want people ex to to experience that nice environment. So I after the cooking class, I sit with my clients and I put Mexican music and then we have some drinks and we eat the food and talk about food and talk about this and talk about that. But it's yes, yeah. yes. As you have heard now from Douglas and from Nicole, sometimes it can be challenging to stay committed to making real Mexican food as it has less to do with your commitment to it and more with facts like availability of ingredients or honestly what is humanely possible to do thousands of miles away from Mexico, just like Chef Sean Hurrell knows very well. And here is him again talking about how he allows himself to make some changes and interpret dishes while paying homage to the original versions. 
I think that respect is a good word for it. I think sometimes when people go a bit wild on things and start doing kind of a lot of fusion food, it, it's probably disrespectful to what they're doing. I mean, I get we get loads of Mexicans coming in and eating. Mm. Like loads of them love it. Well, they keep coming back, you know. So I, I've never said this is going to be a taco exactly like you're going to have it in Mexico City, you know. But they enjoy it and they like it and they, you know, they, it reminds them a bit of home. But it's also they know it's like kind of got my own spin on things a little bit too. And to be honest, it's authenticity as a that's a whole another conversation anyway to talk about that for hours on what is authentic, mm -hmm. you know. Um, if, you, if you're talking like cooking pre-Hispanic Mexican food or, you know, like Veracruz style stuff that's got a huge or stuff with a massive Spanish influence or how, how much would you limit yourself? But at the end of the day, I know I'm not going to be able to cook something that's going to taste exactly as it does in Mexico. So I don't try to cook something that tastes exactly as it does in Mexico. I just try to get something that has the essence of that. But if someone comes in and has a carne asada taco, I want them to eat it and think I'm eating carne asada taco. And I don't go, I don't go mad anyway. You know, I just serve like certain things like salsa negra that's made with lots of soy and stuff and like kind of a nod to that kind of Chinese influence in Mexico and with grilled onions and we just use a really good grass-fed beef and so it's not you know nothing mad just little like small variations on things. I think it's really fair to say that everyone that is listening to this podcast including you yes you is because there is a shared interest in Mexico or Mexican food, either because you have traveled to Mexico or are planning to, you have family bonds with the country, love cooking, or you simply like discovering new things. But for those who are interested about blogging specifically or have already started, take this great advice from Meli Martinez, who also invites us to understand how family recipes evolve and change from generation to generation and the many subtle aspects around them. I believe that a blogger must have a respect for the reader. And if you are saying that something's authentic, just make sure that the recipes are really authentic. It's extremely important to take into account that the region and the personal variations of a recipe are so many. And on top of that, each cook can add their personal touches mm. to a dish. Recipes can evolve as they pass from generation to generation. Your grandma did it one way, my mother another way, and you add another ingredient. Food evolves and it's been changing a lot. <laughs> Just make sure that you do some research. So in order to remain professional when dealing with a complex and a diverse cuisine like Mexican food, I recommend that writers do a lot of research before making claims of authenticity. Uh, when I cook something, I tell them, this is my own version. This is how my mom makes mm -hmm. it. I have such admiration for the hard work and dedication of the people I have met through my work. And I'm also very thankful for having them share so much of their lives in the podcast their intimate thoughts, experiences, lessons. Working with Mexican food has really enriched their lives. And I hope they will touch yours as well, because they have moved and inspired me for sure. Here is one of those very special experiences that Sonia shared. I learned from my parents, no matter what you do, you try to do the best job that you can. Well, there is one story that stands out to me all the time. It's a girl that sent me an email and I want to say this was like maybe six to eight months ago about how she was going to attempt to make my uh, conchas mm -hmm. that I had on my blog because um, her father-in-law was in the hospital with stage four cancer and now I'm going to cry. <laughs> 
and that she wanted to recreate them and make them at home and take them to him so that he could enjoy um, homemade pan dulce the way that he mm. remembered it. So it was very, very touching. And like I said to you before, it's like some days I'm thinking, what am I doing? I don't know if I want to do this anymore. But then you you get emails like that, and it's like, wow, it, you know, you're you're touching somebody, you're you're bringing them a wonderful memory back uh, with food, you know, something simple as a, a concha. You think what? But to somebody else, it could be a lifetime in a bite. It could be everything. Very special. Very special. To close this episode. I selected a last soundbite from Douglas that really takes us back to the wonderful sensory experience that it is to cook, learn and even teach Mexican food that always awakens our perception and enjoyment in very deep and transformative ways. Well, going back to the cooking classes, that's one of the other things that I say. Like, you can't cook Mexican food if you don't put your hands in the food. You can't if you're mixing masa for tamales. You can't put it in the stand mixer and have them come out the same as if you mix it by hand. That magic point where the after you've mixed it for a while, it comes together and it has the right texture. You want people to know you've got to touch the food with your hands. And, you know, and I tell people when they're out, watch when you're around town, when you go to the taco stand, but they flip the tortilla on the griddle with their fingers. They don't use a spatula. You, you do everything, you do everything with your hands and everything, you have to feel it and you know. And that's, that's a real difference because growing up, when you cooked, you used utensils for everything. You touched the food with utensils, but you didn't just shove your hands into the food. That's strange or even wrong. In a way, it says it's not playing with your food, but you have to you have to touch the food because if you don't not touch the food, you don't know. And you know, and, it, and for people, it sounds you know, it's like well, that's you know, kind of out there. You have to touch the food, you have to feel it, you have to have good energy. And it's like, don't you just follow the recipe and it comes out? And it's like, well, not really. Touch the food, work the masa, work the dough. You have to work it with your hands, and you'll figure it out. And if you don't do it, it won't come out the same. Since we last sat down to record each interview, my guests have been very busy growing their projects. Nicole Macrinos just returned from a trip to Mexico, visiting her business partners who produce organic vanilla. And this year's harvest is ready for you to place an order and purchase fresh pots from Vainilla Voladores. In this episode's blog, find the links to her Etsy and eBay shops. Sean Harrell is soon to open another branch of Barrio Comida Taqueria in the historical city of Durham in England. He is now putting together his two favorite foods in the menu, Mexican taqueria tacos and LA-style burritos, made properly, as he proudly says. Robert Nathan Allen really has his hands full, enjoying fatherhood and working hard on little herds, promoting entomophagy, working with the North American Coalition for Insect Agriculture and putting together the upcoming Enterprise and the Austin Future Food Festival in 2020. Sonia Garcia has relaunched her website La Piña en la Cocina with a new image and new features like video tutorials. Sonia 
is one of the most prolific food bloggers I've met, so I promise you really won't be short of inspiration. Meli Martinez is also working hard on the digital front and re-engineering Mexico in my kitchen and making a bilingual now available in English and Espanol. So whether you want to practice your language skills or just get nice recipes, you know where to go. Douglas Cullen is still blogging and preaching the wonders of his adopted cuisine on his website, The Mexican Food Journal. Yolanda Ocon has been hitting the miles traveling to Hong Kong with Jeremy Pang, the celebrity chef and owner of the School of Walk, and she recently offered a Mexican-inspired supper club in the heart of Hong Kong, and even shared some photos, so make sure to see them on this episode's blog post. Carla Sasueta is enjoying these summer holidays, but you can still book an amazing cooking class experience in London, bringing back to life her Mexican food memories. Dr. Deborah Tona organized a symposium called Changing Drinking Cultures, and some of the papers are available for free on the website of the Drinking Studies Network. Her upcoming book is called A Cultural History of Alcohol in the Age of Industry, Empire and War between 1850 and 1950, which will be published by Bloomsbury Academic Press. Debbie will also be facilitating workshops and talks promoting a book in which we work together along with an amazing team. The book's name is Stories on Our Plate, the cookbook. The events will take place in the cities of Edinburgh in Scotland, Coventry, Bradford and London. I really hope you have enjoyed this episode. As you can see, there's always so much to learn and harvest from all these conversations and build this dialogue with so many interesting voices. Thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by me, Rocío Carvajal. To find more information about this project, please go to pazdechipote.com. And I'm really excited to share a big news with you. I want to invite you to a new section of my website called Upcoming Book. In this section, I will be sharing with you the making of my next editorial project called Mexico's Amazing Market Food. I will be sharing all the things you never get to see when I'm working on the production. Photo shootings, field research, recipe testing, the writing process. There's so many interesting things that take place during the production of a book that as an author don't really get to share with you and you as my readers really don't get to know unless I share it with you. So head to my website pasachipote.com and go to the section upcoming book, sign up to my newsletter so you won't miss a thing and I hope to see you all there. Well, that's it for this week my friends, until the next time.